Hello everyone, this is Jean Galea from Mastermind.fm and in this episode I'm joined by Joseph Galea, my dad, and Hassan Daher from Cardus. Cardus is a platform for lending to projects in the UK which are compliant with the Islamic Sharia law. So the main target audience here is Muslim investors, I mean, and also other European investors which are interested in this type of working capital loans. In this episode, I found it very interesting to discuss with Hassan all the workings of Islamic finance. I had never been exposed to this niche of finance, so I found it quite interesting. And this platform is a new platform. It's only been launched a few months ago in July, but I think it's a very promising one. And especially I like the fact that a lot of due diligence is being conducted on each project and the extra restrictions imposed by Sharia law make it perhaps even safer as an investment compared to other Wild West platforms in, in Europe. Especially we've seen some disasters from Baltic platforms earlier this year. Not all of them are, of course, bad, but we've had some pretty bad episodes. And I hope that platforms like Cardus will take the industry to a new level in a more ethical way and a more professional aspect. Also, I wanted to ask you to, if you like this, this new format we're doing with finance topics on Mastermind, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It's been a while since we received a review. I know there are lots of listeners out there because we see the stats. However, we haven't received many reviews so please let me know if you enjoy it just head over to itunes find our podcast and leave a review thank you very much and let's proceed with our interview with hassan before we start a short word from our sponsors now i have two sponsors for this episode wp rss aggregator and spotlight both of them are wordpress plugins and let me tell you how they work so wp rss aggregator can be used to import information blog posts and other content that is based on rss from other websites and you can use it to create your own website based on this imported content a good example of what you can create can be seen at eurofinanceblogs.com again it's eurofinanceblogs.com this is a website i built with this plugin and you can see how i managed to aggregate all the news items from various uh, finance blogs in Europe. So that's one of the use cases that I found very useful for WP RSS aggregator. Now, the other plugin, Spotlight, can be used to import Instagram images into your website. Now, this can be useful for your own personal website, for example, to make sure that when people visit your website, they can also see the images you have on your social media, in this case, Instagram. And it can also be good for those who are selling products. In fact, with the pro version, you are able to import hashtags, which means that when people, for example, customers take photos with your product and hashtag, use the hashtag, you can then pick up all those photos and import them into your product website. Not only that, but you have the option to curate those images. So only the ones, the photos from Instagram, 
Instagram that you want to show up in your website will do so. So check those products out. It's spotlightwp.com and wprssaggregator.com. Both of them have free versions on WordPress.org and they operate on a freemius model, which means that some features, the pro features are available as a pro premium paid version, which are available on their respective websites. So hi Hassan, welcome to Mastermind.fm. Hi hi Jean, it's uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. To dive right into it, I think it's it's an interesting platform that we're discussing today. Something I've never come across before. It's focused on Islamic finance, and so I would like you to give us uh, a brief intro about yourself and how you got the idea to start Cardus. Yeah. So, so I mean, I've, I've got over a decade experience in finance, primarily, I mean, in the mergers and acquisition space with firms such as Deloitte. I've also worked as a private consultant for a bit on a major transaction in the Middle East. I mean, that's what basically opened my eyes to Islamic finance initially, because it's such a massive market over there and in Southeast Asia. I'm also a CFA charter holder and I have a PhD in Islamic finance. So, I mean, initially I studied up north in Manchester and when I came back to the UK, I was interested in this space because of basically the experiences I had. When you close transactions in places such as Cardus, such as the uh, Emirates, such as Saudi Arabia, and parts of uh, Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, sometimes the requirement would be for the method of financing to be Islamic. And I came over here initially, and I wanted to look into this space, but I wanted to look into this space in the UK in a type of uh, I would say, organized environment. So I applied to an incubator accelerator program over here in the UK called uh, Entrepreneur First, which is a deep tech accelerator. I got in and it gave me, it allowed me to de-risk the idea as much as possible from a commercial standpoint. Then I got funding in October 2019, went through all, you know, there are lots of regulations. I mean, we're an appointed representative, so we've got to get uh, regulated first. That took a while. So we managed to launch in July. And basically what we do is, I mean, regulatory-wise, we're an investment-based crowdfunding platform. But on one side of the marketplace, you've got small businesses looking for uh, ethical and Sharia-compliant financing. By Sharia-compliant, I mean Islamic financing. On the other side of the marketplace, you've got investors, basically, who are looking to generate returns by lending out to them. And we primarily offer right now working capital financing. Uh, terms of 24 months and uh, that's unsecured basically and uh, so we recently launched on july 3rd during the pandemic and uh, that's been a blessing actually because it allowed us basically to reposition ourselves and see how we want to tackle the market focus on recession-proof industries and recession-proof businesses i'm pretty sure that if we had launched before the pandemic and we had funded some cyclical uh, businesses in our pipelines we would have had difficulties right now so that's been really interesting for us and yeah, so I mean, we've been trying to maneuver in these difficult times as good as possible, and it's been going really well so far. Okay, so so far, the matchmaking process seems similar to other platforms. I mean, in Europe, especially, we've seen a multitude yeah. of platforms, and also yeah. in the UK. Yeah. But what I mentioned earlier is the Islamic twist on it. So yeah. I'd yeah. like you yeah. to get into that and what does that mean because i'm sure many yeah. of our listeners will not be familiar with sure that. sure sure so when we talk about islamic finance if we were to compare it to something such as let's say esg or 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 ethical investing or anything like that i would say the negative screening criteria is similar 
but there are some additional elements involved, such as, for example, we cannot bring in uh, pork pork manufacturing companies and stuff like that. So there are similarities with ESG screening criteria, but what makes Islamic finance different is that the contracts themselves as well are different. Uh, what do I mean by that? Islamic finance has to always be linked to real economic activity, which means that Islamic finance is always asset-backed or asset-based. So when you're looking at, for example, working capital financing, because sometimes the requirements for working capital financing are not tangible, what we would do, and in our case is what's called the commodity murabaha arrangement, in that we use commodities to transfer liquidity from the investor to the borrower. So we set up an SPV. The SPV purchases, for example, 100,000 pounds worth of commodities, sells them to the borrower. Then we act as the agent of the borrower to sell the commodities in the market and give them the money. And what the borrower is left with is the price of the commodities that they've got to repay, the principal, plus what's called the profit markup rate. The profit markup rate would be, let's say, would take the place of the interest, if you want. And they would have to pay back the cost plus the markup over the repayment facility. So to summarize it, what makes Islamic finance different is not only the screening criteria involved, but also the contracts themselves that have to be unique and have to be different to be compliant with the Islamic finance rules and principles. Okay. So from an investor who's doesn't really care about what kind of finance it is, yeah. but uh, just wants to make sure that his investment is as safe as possible. Yeah. Would you say that this type of investing has more is more stringent than other more conventional types of investing, or is it just because things like you know pork, for example? I guess. Uh, I one would understand why that's not uh, obviously allowed within the Islamic uh, framework. However, yeah. it doesn't give me as an investor any extra safeguards. But I yeah. think there are other safeguards that would be going over and above what the typical platform offers, no? Yes, that's correct. So, I mean, one of the requirements is that because the contracts are, are structured a certain way, there is definitely a minimization of risk involved. When it comes to the structuring of the contracts themselves, everything has to be predefined. Everything has to be very clear. Everything has to be very clearly stated. So the contracts are very robust in that sense. But this doesn't take away from the fact that we are a capital at risk platform. So basically, when an investor comes basically to lend on the platform, their capital is at risk. It's an unsecured type of financing. So right now, we've decided to target working capital financing initially because it's much in demand right now. But going forwards, as we look at other types of financing or other uses of financing, we go towards more asset-backed structures whereby there is collateral involved. Then we start looking at secured, more secured types of financing. But I would say that over and above the contracts being very robust, so we've made sure of that, I would say that one interesting fact as well is that we primarily want to position ourselves as well as an ethical platform and a responsible lending platform so in that sense we do not let a distressed company come and borrow on our platform because we feel that that would go contrary to the the sharia norms so the laws of islamic finance and we feel that as well it 
it's very unethical to be able to do that, to bring on distressed companies, offer them very high rates, such as some of the players in the market are currently doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how much you're familiar with the UK market, but if you look at, for example, lenders such as Iwoka, Iwoka offer basically anything between 24% per annum to 75% per annum uh, because they've got a different model. And basically, they're looking at volumes more than anything else because they have an institutional lender backing them. So that's a market we would not like to enter to, even though it could be attractive at some point. And definitely institutional investors, because they've got different risk return criteria and their decision making process would encourage. But I mean, we're trying to be as responsible as possible. We're trying to make sure that the SMEs that we're bringing forward are as ethical as possible. So over and above the negative screening criteria, we're working right now on defining the social impact of the SMEs on our platform. So we're working right now on developing a matrix that will allow us to evaluate these SMEs and create, for example, a social impact scorecard to see what type of impact they're making. We're also looking at the environment as well, so but primarily social impact. So we want to bring in this scorecard to basically allow investors not only to evaluate the financial returns from this SME, but as well look at the social impact or the, or the impact of these SMEs on the environment as well as from a social standpoint. So that's something we're working on right now and we're working on aggressively and we plan to bring into account. And that's something that could feed into our credit models going forwards. But obviously the statistics, basically, the data has to decide that whether it plays a factor in the long run. So we, we've spoken on the, about the limitations from a borrower's standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. From the investor's standpoint, do you exclude any kind of investor or is it open to investors all over the world? Yeah, so primarily open to investors in the UK and Europe. Investors from other areas can apply, but we'll have to do an enhanced due diligence of the investors on the platform and ask for specific you know, proof of address. So it's a longer process for investors outside the UK and Europe. Otherwise, all investors on the UK and Europe are welcome. If I give you a breakdown of the current investors on our platform, I would say up to 20% of them are non-Muslim. So they see uh, significant diversification benefits of getting on our platform and investing because it allows them access to a unique asset class. It allows them access to a unique type of borrower in that the directors basically are very lightly leveraged, I would say to a certain extent. They focus on specific segments of the market. And uh, I mean, primarily healthcare, manufacturing specific areas of the market so healthcare has been very good for us because i mean there's an unusually large amount of muslim-owned smes in this space over here in the uk but i would like to stress that neither the borrowers of the investors have to be muslim but it's a no-brainer that given that we are offering ethical and sharia compliant financing that our target market would be primarily muslim so yeah to get back to your earlier question there are no limitations on investors as long as they pass our AML and KYC procedures. It's a very, I mean, automated process for UK and European investors because obviously we've got uh, software in the background that does the KYC checks and all that stuff. So yeah, so no obstacles okay. on that point. And we've got an average investor, uh, minimum investment of £100 per uh, uh, investor. Okay. Uh, one more question before I pass on to my dad, because I'm very curious about this Islamic finance thing. Yeah, sure. And who best to answer this question than you having a PhD in the subject? Yeah. yeah. So, so it's the so kind of the first time that I really get into this. Yeah. I, I know it's a big question, but how does it differ and where in the world do we see this kind of Islamic finance really 
take hold of the marketplace. You mentioned yeah. places like Dubai and possibly even the UK, certain sectors. Yes. So yes. I, I'd like to put in some more context on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at the Islamic financial landscape, it covers basically, I would say, all elements of the financial landscape, whether it's insurance, whether it's obviously banking and finance. So, I mean, it's pretty extensive. And if we were to look at where it's primarily coming from, so to be in predominantly Muslim countries, that's where, so it's a 1.6 trillion pound market globally at this stage is expected to grow uh, beyond that double-digit growth rates over the next five years, according to Reuters, predominantly in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Middle East, obviously. Parts of Africa, for example, is growing really fast in Nigeria. In Europe, you have around uh, 25 million Muslims. It's growing really well in Germany. It's growing really well in the UK. So you have four Islamic banks in the UK. The biggest one has grown its books over the last eight years by around four times. Uh, Sorry for the interruption. What's the main driver of this growth? The main driver of this growth, to be frank with you, if you look at recent surveys, right now we're talking about the second and third generation of Muslims in the UK, for example, let's take it. It shows that the people mo most likely to take on Islamic finance are the 25 to 44-year-olds. So that runs counter to intuition because you would think that the first generation would be most likely, the second, third generation would be less likely, but it's not the case. I would say two things. So one is that, basically, you have a generation that's looking, I would say you have a generation of young people across the board, not only Muslims are looking for ethical, but Islamic strikes accord with Muslims predominantly because it offers ethical criteria and parameters that they can relate to. Uh, a second thing would be upward social mobility. So the first generation came in, there were probably shopkeepers and the likes, the second generation, third generation are doctors, engineers. There's a very high level of entrepreneurship in this community. So this is when it comes to the UK. You see similar dynamics in Germany. Obviously, in the UK, the Muslims are predominantly from South Asia. In the Germany, they're predominantly from Turkish origin. I would guess in Spain, it's predominantly North African, maybe. Yeah. So we're seeing similar dynamics, and it's predominantly from the young. So it's getting generated by the 25 to 44-year-olds. They are the ones who are most likely to ask for it. So this service has been provided. Obviously, another thing would be is if you look at the case of the UK, for example, the four Islamic banks are predominantly Gulf-owned, owned by Gulf investors. Gulf investors traditionally have invested heavily in the real estate market. So these Islamic banks focus predominantly on the real estate market, and they offer Islamic mortgages and the likes. So the money comes from there, if you want, and it's fueling the world economy. Uh, what about so places like Africa and the Middle East? Yeah. The yeah, growth so Africa, is it the yeah, same so, thing? So the growth there is uh, much bigger. So I would say in the UK, it's a growing niche market, even though it's growing really fast. In the Middle East and Asia, especially Southeast Asia, you're looking at very high penetration rates, nearing 50%. So in a place like Saudi Arabia, 50% of the banking sector is conventional and 50% of the banking sector is Islamic. In Malaysia, which was a pioneer in this space, it's similar. There are different schools of thought. So as in Christianity, you know, you have uh, Catholics, you have Protestants as well. In the Islamic space, you have different schools of thought. You have four primary schools of thought. Each one has a different inter interpretation of what Islamic finance is to a certain extent. And that influences how they structure products in these markets. But I would say as well in Malaysia, similar to what we saw on our platform, there is a very high degree of non-Muslims who go to uh, Islamic banks as well. So what they do, 
is uh, they, for example, ask for a mortgage rate from a conventional bank in Malaysia and ask for a mortgage rate from an Islamic bank, and they go for the rate that suits them best. So that plays as well. I mean, it's more of a commercial decision for them. For the Muslims, it's more of uh, basically a decision of, I mean, interest is not allowed in Islam. They're looking for uh, basically for structures that are interest-free. And for them, it's basically a no-brainer. They have to go for Islamic finance if they're religious. And when they're not, let's say they're not really religious and don't conform fully, they still go for Islamic finance if it's viable for them when they look at the numbers. So tying back to the structure you were mentioning earlier with the SPV and stuff, this is why the interest is kind of structured in that way, no? To to be compliant. Yeah, so it's to be compliant. We are using trade-based contracts uh, for working capital. So if you ask me for another use in finance, for let's say asset financing, I would not use this structure, but I use it for working capital financing. So working capital financing where an asset cannot be identified. So let's say there's a seasonal funding gap that a business needs to fill up with working capital financing. They would come in and uh, they would basically uh, come on our platform. All that stuff happens in a very automated manner in the back end. So uh, we use commodities, basically, they purchase commodities, they sell them to the SME at the markup. So that's a trade-based activity. And then uh, we act as the agents of the uh, SME to sell the commodities and give them the money. That's done in the same day, basically. So there's no commodity risk, there's no price fluctuation risk involved. So yeah, we essentially use this structure because it's a Sharia compliance structure that's been viable for offering working capital financing. And so just to make myself my my ideas clear as a muslim would i be tied specifically to using such platforms or is it just a decision that i make based on my conscience kind of or is it like you have to do this yeah it's it's basically you have to do this because if you look at the the scripts and for example the quran the quran clearly states that interest or usury is uh, prohibited Mm. Most religions actually do that as well. So if you look at the history in Europe as well, like interest in usury was prohibited for a very long time. Uh, the Christians so, as well. Yes, I was yes. just looking into it recently about the history yeah. of the, the banks. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's, very, it's very interesting. I mean, I was reading that as well, and there's a lot of similarities in, in, in the prohibition of usury. So that's clearly stated in the scriptures. Now, whether or not Muslim wants to follow that, I mean, it's, it's a free world. But if they're following their religion and they bypass this element, I mean, and they're religious, they would be worried, basically, because it's clearly stated that it's prohibited. Okay. Okay, I'm uh, Jean's father. I'm Joseph. I've been in the financial world for the past uh, 45 years. I'm 64 now. I'm an accountant by profession, and I was involved in many bond issues and loans, overdrafts, whatever. (laughs) This is quite interesting, what we have been talking about here. And it's heartening to note that people are looking for ethical business. Over the years, I've heard many people say, business is business. You cannot be 100% ethical if you want to make headway in business. The fact that people now are turning to ethics, I think it's very heartening for the whole world. And this is quite intriguing, uh, what you have been saying. Although, as a Christian, and as Jean was saying, even in Christianity, 
uh, usually uh, is, is not good and uh, it's a sin as far as I know. However, my big question mark is this. You mentioned a company in distress. If a company in distress comes to your platform, sort of you are saying, if I understand well, that if you use um, the situation to your advantage, you would be committing a crime or something bad. On the other hand, looking at it from a different angle, a company in distress can come to you telling you, I'm drowning, please help me. And you tell, but I'm sorry, I mean, it's too risky for us. We have to charge you interest to compensate us for the additional risk. And they tell you, no problem. I'm sinking anyway, I'm drowning anyway. Please throw me something to save me, even at a high interest cost. Therefore, if you don't let them in, are you doing something good or bad? That's a very interesting question, and thanks for ask, uh, asking this. This is actually something I was looking at uh, fairly recently. In Islamic finance, there's a structure, a specific type of contract called Kard al-Hasan that has a specific use. Now, in this contract, I mean, the structure of this contract allows for two parties to get involved without charging any any returns for it. So, in 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 such a structure, in such a contract, obviously you can uh, take into account inflation, but the objective of the contract would be helping people out under specific circumstances. So this is something that is very interesting for us, and we're wondering whether at some point we can incorporate it into our platform. Obviously, it will not be return generative, not beyond inflation. I mean, but it would play a vital use in helping people out without charging them for it. So this contract has got specific principles and objectives that come into play. And I've seen entire banks structured based on this contract. So I've seen there are in certain countries in the Middle East, institutions that only do that. They offer a card al-Hassan and the whole objective is social as compared to uh, making returns. So I was wondering, in that sense, if at some point someone could, for example, start a platform by setting up, for example, contracts that have a risk-return trade-off that appeals to investors, and then allowing these investors to allocate a specific percentage of their portfolios to these unique contracts that purely have a social purpose as compared to uh, a return payoff, and to be able to help the likes of these SMEs that you're mentioning, I mean, that would play a very important objective and that would basically help these companies in distress that really need help especially given the massive shock that took place because of the pandemic so i mean it's very interesting you mentioned that and i wish we could see more of that not only in the islamic finance space but across the world i mean when you look at risk return expectations so for example an investor right now can make a net return uh, projected net return of around 12.15% on our platform in the latest offer uh, per annum. So let's say you allocate your portfolio to make anything between 10 to 15% per annum, and then you allocate, let's say, 5 to 10%, depending on your risk tolerance, to these unique types of contracts to help SMEs in need under specific parameters that meet the criteria that you've set out in advance. And then they repay the principal when they can, but if they cannot, then you'd still have the choice basically to write off that amount 
that would be very interesting because you'd be allocating your portfolio in such a way to compromise, I mean, part of the returns on your portfolio, but still make a massive social impact. But obviously, I mean, that's early on. I mean, we're still looking at it because, I mean, I'll tell you, for example, in some countries of the Middle East, I've seen these institutions get set up. And every time someone wants to help, he would go in and he would put an amount in what's called the Kard al-Hassan. And then this Kard al-Hassan would get loaned out for a specific purpose. And then the money would get returned to the institution and would get lent out again. So to create a ripple effect in the economy. And uh, most of the people who take this money usually repay it. So it's got a very low default rate just because of the, the, the unique use of it. So, I mean, that's very interesting. It's, the question is whether or not it could be integrated at some point. Well, the points that you have been mentioning, the philosophy is very noble, I would say. The thing is that unless companies are forced to contribute to a particular fund, yeah. to a solidarity fund, yeah. to help others, they would tell you, we are not a charitable institution know, here. Know, we have shareholders yeah. chasing us for dividends. Yeah. And they would accuse me that I'm not caring about their interests first, but taking the side of others. Yeah. And what would be your reaction to that? Yeah. Uh, so I'm aware that this would never fly with institutional funds, especially if you want to go for a credit line. I'm aware that, as you mentioned, I mean, in our case right now, we're focused entirely on building a track record. So it's not in our, I mean, we want to build a solid track record. We want to have very low default rates so we could go on and, and, and co continue expanding our platform. I would say right now there is what's called, an, there are other vehicles that could be used. So when we're looking just purely from a Sharia compliance standpoint, there is what's called an Islamic tax. It's called zakat. And that zakat could go into a fund that could be used for these types of purposes. So there are other ways of doing it. I mean, so this Islamic tax would go for benefits, for social benefits. So that could be used. But to answer your question outright, Joseph, it's a very thin line. But my question to them would be, we live in a market right now where a lot of people are talking about impact and they're talking about ESG and they're talking about all that is good. But if Apple technologies meets negative screening criteria, are you really doing good in the economy? Are you really doing good? Are you really an ethical and impact investor? I mean, that doesn't apply only at large. It applies as well to Islamic finance. Like there is Islamic stock screening criteria and there are massive funds that do it. Are they really doing any good? I mean, what defines ethical? That's my question to them. I mean, what does it mean to be ethical? What does it mean to be impactful? I mean, I always had an issue with that because right now, if all that's making you ethical or impactful is using negative screening criteria, I mean, does Apple or IBM really meet these criteria? To what extent do they meet these criteria? You hear a lot of stuff relating to Foxconn and all that kind of stuff, what's going on in China and everything. So, I mean... It comes back to a very ethical debate that comes to the core of being ethical and impactful. And that doesn't apply only to the conventional space, but also I would tell you to the Islamic finance space. What does it mean to be ethical in structure versus ethical in form? What does it mean to be ethical in substance versus ethical in form? So that's the real question that this comes down to. So Actually, I was going to ask you yeah. this, this very poignant question. Yeah, There are uh, people who say, 
But the Sharia law, what is it? I mean, it's a camouflage of interest into something else. If I understand well, um, from my basic knowledge of Sharia law, you go for a sort of brotherhood um, into a sort of joint venture, the lender and the borrower. And then if the venture is successful, they share the, the gains. Yeah. The question is from the other side, but yeah. if I am lending money yeah. and the venture goes bust, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I should get a return for the risk that I had taken in lending the money. I'm not the developer as such. Yeah. Therefore, why shouldn't I get a decent and market interest? Not usually, yeah. usually, um, because usually is taking advantage of a situation and mm. you charge exorbitant rates or yeah. highly above market interest rates. Yeah. Therefore, if you charge, you know, the, the normal interest rate, which applies to all the basic normal uh, transactions, yeah. why should that be bad? And in Sharia law, is it a form over substance? Rather, as you said, substance over form. What is it? And many Westerners um, or non-Muslim struggle to understand this concept. Yeah. So the risk-return trade-off is accepted. It's halal, if you want to say. So there's nothing wrong with generating returns per unit of risk. That's fine. It brings back to what you were earlier saying around usury itself that's not allowed by the Sharia. But I mean, if I give you an overview of what we're talking about here, when you look at Islamic finance, the the essence of Islamic finance is risk sharing, not risk transfer. This is the essence of Islamic finance. So under this, if you take the theoretical structure you were mentioning earlier, an investor would be sharing in the returns and the risk at the same time. So the elements of financial leverage will change. So let's look at a bank, right? If a bank had risk-sharing mechanisms on the depository side and uh, risk-sharing mechanisms on the asset side, you would no longer have distress or banking distress, or it wouldn't be as prevalent as it is these days, whereby every 8 to 12 years you have a financial crisis that brings the whole world to its knees. What's creating this element of, I would say, lack of strength in the banking sector or fragility in the banking sector is essentially financial leverage, nothing else, plus an element of moral hazard. So I'm just starting with a theoretical discussion here, which basically the essence of Islamic finance is risk sharing. Now, if you ask me, how is Islamic finance today? Islamic finance is primarily based on risk transfer mechanisms. So risk transfer mechanism. So if you look at the books of all the Islamic banks globally, you would see that they're primarily involved in risk transfer mechanisms that operate similar to the conventional system, but take into account profit instead of interest. This is the way Islamic banking is operating today. The way it should operate is more towards risk sharing to avoid financial crisis at the macro level and avoid elements of financial distress at the micro level. So this is how it should be. This is how it should go towards it. Now, contemporary Islamic finance is only 30 years old. It's only resurrected in Southeast Asia 30 years ago. So it takes a while for us to get to that stage. So to answer your question outright, an element of profit 
commensurate with the risk involved is allowed. Obviously, this element of profit will increase the more risk an investor takes. Anything above that element of risk or not commensurate with that element of risk would be not Sharia compliant. And this is where the issue comes in. For example, loan sharks. Uh, so loan sharks charge an element of, I mean, they charge very high rates. This often leads to significant cases of severe distress by people, often leads to suicide. There are many examples. There's an example of Amigo loans, if you read about them in the Financial Times. It's crazy what's going on with people. I mean, they're often getting led to suicide. So, I mean, there is a threshold when usury starts to break the backs of the people who are taking it. And this is what's not allowed, this unjust, unethical practice. So, again, to answer your question, profit is totally allowed. Profit with an element of risk. So right now, on our platform, you are essentially acting as a lender. You are expecting a profit rate of 12.15% per annum. You are lending, so the uh, borrower has to repay the principal amount plus the profit markup on a monthly basis over the term of the facility. He is bound by the terms of the agreement. And there's also a director guarantee involved in case the SME is unable to repay. So all these elements are present, and that's what makes it similar to what an investor would expect on other capital at risk platforms, basically. Yeah, just 12.5% that you are mentioning. Yeah. That's another point. Yeah. For me, it seems high when compared to the average return on any investment that one can make, unless it's quite risky, unless yeah. the investment is quite risky. Yeah. Therefore, in your case, a return of 12.5%, yeah. from where is it coming? Is it coming from taking on high risks? Yeah, so the element of 12.15% on the transaction we're looking at right now is basically, I mean, we are primarily financing micro SMEs in the UK. These micro SMEs usually cannot go to a bank and get financing. Uh, one, because the banks do not provide Islamic business financing at this stage. So there is a lack of that in the market. Second, because banks are not structured to finance the micro SMEs. So that's the first thing. If you look at the micro SMEs that we are financing, you would see that they wouldn't have that many assets on their books. So making it secured for this tranche of SMEs doesn't make sense. But as we look at higher ticket sizes and more mature SMEs, we could probably go for secured financing that will be at much lower rates. So the unsecured financing that we're providing, the rates we're providing now are similar to the market here in the UK, who uh, service this space, so the micro SMEs at this ticket size. So we're not charging above the market in the conventional space. Therefore, the 12.5% is the rate of return that a shareholder would expect? No, uh, the 12.5% is the... Okay, so if you look at our structure, you are a shareholder in the SPV. But the rate of return that you're looking at, the 12.15% per annum, is the rate of return, the projected rate of return that a lender would expect, not an equity investor. Yeah, because on one hand, we're talking about sort of brotherhood, doing business, you know, together and sharing the risks and the advantage and profit, uh, etc. Yeah. On the other hand, now we're saying that it is a sort of interest. Uh, don't you see that there is a contradiction here? No, I mean, 
in Islamic finance, there have been contracts for all purposes. So the contracts range from risk sharing models that are in line with the theoretical models, all the way to risk transfer models that are also allowed. So for every sort of purpose, there is an equivalent contract in Islamic finance. So when we're looking at the mechanisms that we're using right now, we're looking at pure risk transfer mechanisms because essentially business owners should not have to go or resort for equity financing in order to finance a working capital financing requirement. So if you look at the first SME or the SME we've currently got live on our platform, this SME basically needs financing for purchasing inventory. If we go for a risk-sharing contract as per Islamic finance, what we're essentially doing is allowing for the investors to become shareholders in the SME and uh, make a higher return per unit of risk because they'd be going towards the equity risk premium. That doesn't suit the needs of someone looking for working capital financing. So what we are offering right now is a contract. I mean, if we look at the theoretical model, it is not only the risk-sharing mechanisms that are allowed in Islam. Islam takes into account the different uses of finance that are required. And in this case, the use of finance for working capital financing means that what you have to go for is an Islamic debt contract and not an Islamic equity contract. I don't know if that makes sense. John, do you have any other questions before I go into the integrity of, of no, no, uh, investing? No, on following with interest. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, uh, sometimes it gets a little bit blurred, uh, yeah. I, I must say, um, yeah. because on one hand, we're saying that we're sort of brothers and we share. On the other hand, now we're getting uh, a sort of loan interest, but in an ethical manner. I would agree with that. And I really look forward uh, as a person that before I pass away, I see the business world acting more ethically around the world and uh, a better redistribution of wealth at the end of the day, because that's extremely important to end the wars that that erupt from time to time. Yeah. And, you know, immigration from poor countries to richer countries and all that. And when I see something like this, I, I look at it with, with interest, actually. But it's not easy to, I think, to marry the business world with ethical principles and religious principles. Yeah. Sometimes it's difficult. And I know certain businessmen who are very ethical in their approach, sometimes they have to pay a price when compared to their competitors. And this is, makes me sad, actually. Going into some further details about your platform, if I understand well, it has been set up very recently, actually, as you said, this year, during the pandemic, as you said, it had the advantage that at least you didn't go for investments that maybe would find themselves in difficulty at the first you know, economic recession, and that's good. You are saying that you are Sharia certified. This is also another interesting point. Yeah. When you say you are Sharia certified, who gives you the certification? Yeah. So we are Sharia certified in uh, two ways. First, there is it's got to be provided by a Sharia scholar. In our case, we've got details of the certification on our site. It's a prevalent scholar here in the UK 
that's provided us with Sharia certification, but we've also made sure that from a Sharia standpoint, all the contracts that we have on our platform are uh, Sharia compliant and in line with the accounting and it's AAIOIFI. So it's the Accounting and Auditing Organization of Islamic Financial Institutions. It's the biggest standard setter in Islamic finance globally. So they have parameters for Islamic financial contracts. We made sure that all our contracts are in line with those parameters. So we have four major schools of thought. We wanted to make sure that our contracts are prevalent and uh, robust and in line with these schools of thought. So we made sure that our contracts are in line with the biggest standard setting body in the world in that sense. But do you have a, an audit from time to time? Yes. So, uh, and the, who, who carries the audit? Is it a Sharia compliant audit firm? Yeah. How do you go along? There? So it's the same Sharia advisory firm that gave us our Sharia compliance certificate. So they come and do an audit. They're actually hands-on and actively involved in our business. So the Sharia scholar who heads Amana Advisory basically works very closely with us to make sure that everything we do is Sharia compliant. And obviously the contracts get reviewed once they're done to make sure that they're Sharia compliant. So we used initially a legal firm that's got massive experience in preparing Islamic financial contracts. And they basically made sure first that the contracts are Sharia compliant. Then we made sure that they're compliant with the IOFI standards, the biggest standard setting body in Islamic finance globally. And then we passed it on to Amana Advisory under the, their head Sharia scholar. And he basically reviewed our platform, reviewed our contracts, gave us a Sharia certificate and make sure that he does to make sure that we maintain. Well, when you mentioned these scholars, therefore they get some kind of uh, warrant or an accreditation from somebody, from an institution, maybe? They, they fulfill all the uh, requirements that they've got to fulfill in order to get to the stages that they're at, and they, get, and they get all the required accreditations. And it's not only the accreditations that they've got to get, but they also have to be uh, well-spoken and uh, standout members of the community, because at the end of the day, it's the community that's investing on our platform. So they have to make sure that the scholar who's approving the platform is not someone, for example, out of, so for example, as a UK platform, someone out of Africa that they don't know. It's got to be a standing member of the community that they follow from a religious standpoint, has a strong understanding of finance and can come through and make sure that the platform is certified because then he's got to pass that on to the members of the community. And then, then they seek assurances that everything is okay and all right and meets the standards. But I mean, Joseph, I just wanted to clarify one thing before that around what we were speaking to earlier. So it's often a misconception that uh, people think that Islamic finance only covers, I mean, the risk sharing mechanisms, but uh, it actually covers the entire spectrum of financing needs because from a practical standpoint, not only equity sharing or equity based mechanisms can be used to meet all the financing requirements of people. The trade-based mechanisms are widely approved, and uh, they're in line with the Sharia as well. So, I mean, the needs of people and the needs of man are very important in that sense. But what has got to be pointed out is that the Islamic financial contracts cannot have this element of uncertainty in them. So they have to be structured in a way that clears out any form of uncertainty, whether it's around the structures, whether around the, even the assets that are being used to transfer the liquidity mechanisms. So the assets have to be readily available in the market. So right now, for example, we use platinum 
if platinum is not readily available, another asset has to be used for this specific purpose, which is working capital financing. So yeah, so Islamic finance just follows this entire spectrum of financing needs of people. And it's not only the risk sharing mechanisms that are Sharia compliant, but also other mechanisms, whether debt-based or equity-based. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, therefore, let's assume that uh, I'm looking at your platform. I'm intrigued by the name. First yeah. of all, I, I was actually intrigued by the name. Yeah. I come from Malta, where we have a number of words in our language that have Arabic roots. And oh, really? Yeah. Purely, purely Arabic. Yeah. But we, we don't have this word in our language. And when I, apparently, it, card means uh, alone, right? Yeah. In, in Arabic. Yeah. Okay, therefore, you are associating the platform more with a loan rather with uh, a profit sharing uh, mechanism or, or right. shares or equity. That's right. Okay, therefore, an yeah. I am assuming that I'm an ethical person, right? Yeah. I look at your platform. Yeah. I say, okay, Sharia law, yes. They also say that they do business very ethically, and I really like that. I feel at peace with my conscience as well. I know that this platform probably does not exploit um, the weaknesses of the borrowers and, you know, take unfair advantages Yeah. to my advantage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, therefore, I feel good about, about that. Yeah. On the other hand, let's say I'm selling this idea to my wife, mm. okay? And we have some savings, lifelong savings. Yeah. And I'm putting them into your platform. My wife wouldn't have gone into the integrity and all the details. She asks me a simple question. Are you sure that we're going to get a good return and the money is safe? Yeah. And my immediate response would be, I tell her, I'm doing this with an ethical company. Hmm. And I'm sure, therefore, that it's no scam. This is one of the biggest risks of these, you know, budding platforms here and there that puts my mind at rest. I tell her that they do things ethically, and that's good in line with our principles. But the last question is, but if we lose everything, therefore, what is the underlying security? Therefore, if we're giving a loan to somebody to build a property to sell it eventually, yeah or to build a property to use it for his own house, you know, yeah. for his own abode. Yeah. What happens if the project fails? Yeah. Therefore, if we're not taking any security, any mortgage on the property, yeah. and that would mean that we can even ask him to get out of the property, we evict him from the property, yeah. which wouldn't sound that Christian or, <laughs> or, or Muslim, you know, uh, yeah. philosophy. Yeah. But at least would protect our money. Yeah. What would be your reply to that? Yeah, the, the reply would be uh, right now, because we are targeting uh, working cap capital financing primarily, we are offering unsecured working capital financing that's backed by director guarantee. So we do two layers of checks in the company. The first check is financial check. My colleague, is a, who's a senior credit underwriter, does all the number crunching to make sure that from a financial standpoint, this borrower can take on the amount of financing that's required and cover it. But right now, we've been very cautious and secure in how we're going about doing this. So to such an extent that 
the businesses we offer financing to can usually cover the financing from the cash that they have on their books in full. So in that standpoint, we do the credit risk profiling and we're only letting in very stable companies that are making money right now during the pandemic. That's from a financial standpoint. Otherwise, I would say that going forward, we would be looking at providing secured financing. It wouldn't be for the micro SMEs we're targeting now because they don't have that type of assets on their book. They don't have that much of a balance sheet. But it would be going forwards as we go for more mature SMEs that have got assets on their books. And it would be going forward depending on the type of financing. So as you mentioned correctly, when there is an asset involved, an asset can be identified. We would not be using this commodity Murabaha. We would not be using metals on the stock exchange basically to transfer liquidity. We would be using the asset itself and taking the asset itself as security. But obviously, the rates then would not be that high. So the rates are commensurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why the rates are high. If we're looking at secured financing, we're dropping below the double digits and we're going into single digits, maybe. Yeah, but if that happens, it means mm -hmm. that if the borrower defaults, yeah. you take the property. Correct. Correct. Is that, is that Christian? Is that um, Muslim philosophy? Uh, yeah, so all elements must be done to avoid this type of drastic situation. But it's, I mean, if the... It, if the asset does not have any lien on it and the directors provided it, it's fair game, to be frank with you. It's fair game because it's coming back to what I mentioned earlier, Joseph, that in the contract, everything has been specified and cleared in advance. So the borrower must know exactly what he's getting into. And I would add an additional layer to that. I would add that we look at the directors as well. And we look at the credit worthiness of the directors. So if the director is not really credit worthy, uh, we will not take that asset. So if all the director's got is this house and he's got his family living in this house, he should go to someone else to get financing, to be frank with you. I mean, we ask for asset liability statements of the individual directors and all the directors that we've financed so far are uh, high net worth in the sense that they can more than cover the financing obligations of the company that they're in, that they're directing, but also would not be in distress in the theoretical scenario where we actually take an asset as security going forwards. So that comes back to what I was mentioning earlier. We want to be responsible lenders. That's really important. And uh, otherwise, I mean, the market is huge over here in the UK. If someone wants to gamble with his family's life, he could go somewhere else. You know, there's no shortage of lenders in the UK. But uh, again, just to finalize this, Joseph, we are a capital at risk model. Anyone who wants to lend on our platform must understand the risks involved, they are clearly stated on our site. They're clearly stated in the information memorandum that we've got posted for each SME that we finance. So they must come into this knowing that the returns are high, but because there is an element of risk involved, then they could lose it. It's a capital at risk. We do our homework. We make sure that the credit checks are done to the highest extent possible. We crunch the numbers. We, we do the credit risk profiling. We've got a pricing matrix commensurate with that in the market. We are not charging higher because we are ethical. We're charging in line with market rates. The terms is over 24 months. There is a director guarantee. We make sure that the director is credit worthy and a high net worth individual. Then all the risk is passed on to the investor and he must know he could lose his money. We try to minimize this risk to the highest extent possible, but the risk is there. It's still there. Fair enough. You try to avoid having to uh, enforce your security, basically. Yeah. Um, but other, another, you know, line of thinking can be this. Yeah. 
I can ask you, okay, um, I appreciate your ethics, but you're trying to be safe always. Um, you go for the high net worth individuals. But in a way, you are excluding the possibility that younger people start a new venture because you might not perceive them to be that stable and secure, no? Yeah. Is that the case? Therefore, they might tell you, but yeah, don't we deserve a chance? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's correct. Right now, we ask for a minimum trade. We have eligibility criteria. We ask for a minimum trading history of three years. We ask for profitability in two out of three years. I would suggest to these young people who are starting businesses to take on equity initially. Just in the interest of full disclosure, equity contracts are Sharia compliant. So I think it's better for them to take on an equity partner initially to absorb that type of risk. And then maybe after a couple of years of trading history, profitability in two out of three years, then they could come into our platform and be eligible. I mean, we cannot service all uh, segments of the market. Uh, we are focusing on a specific segment because we saw a need for it. I don't think we will be going into that area of the market with uh, debt-based contracts, with Islamic debt-based contracts. It would rather require Islamic equity contracts. We're not even Islamic equity contracts. Equity contracts are Islamic, so equity contracts. I think that would be much more suitable for this type of risk profile. Or venture debt. I mean, venture capitalists do that sometimes. They have this type of appetite. Therefore, no. Since you started, uh, how was your rate of success? Because I looked into your website and the projects that are listed are still awaiting more funding to come in to yeah. be fully funded. Yeah. Uh, so we've reached the minimum target on the first two deals on our platform. That's something we should have stated on the site, what the minimum target is. We haven't reached the maximum target yet, but we're working towards it. So, I mean, because we recently started, we still need more liquidity on our platform, to be frank with you, Joseph. We recently launched the cash boost scheme only yesterday. And this cash push scheme uh, basically provides additional incentives for investors where they can generate higher returns by investing on our platform. So if they invest between £1,000 to £4,999, they get 1% extra returns. If they invest between 5K to 10K, they make 2%. Above 10K, they make 3%. So we launched that yesterday. And uh, I mean, we're looking to generate more and more liquidity on our platform. And uh, we're getting better. So on the first one, on the first deal on our site, we reached the minimum target, but it was not as highly funded as the second deal. On the second deal, we passed the threshold of over 50%. Again, we reached the minimum target. The investor was looking for 50K. We got 32K. That passed the threshold. So we passed on. We closed the deal on the site. Right now with this new deal, we're looking to get 50K. We're hoping to get this fully funded. Therefore, are you taking on deposits at uh, rates higher than the banks? The investors on our platform will be generating 12-15% projected returns on this new deal. They generated above 10% on the deal we closed only last week. So the rates no, are... I'm talking about, because you mentioned a new, a new product, if I understood well. The cash-based. Yeah, the, the cash-based. Yeah. Boost. Do, do, do you encourage people to deposit money with you and you give them a rate of interest which is higher than that they would get uh, if they deposit their funds with the banks? Yeah, I mean, they're making uh, uh, higher rates anyways on our platform uh, compared to banks because banks have got the... But do you need a banking license for that? Uh, oh, no, the cash boost scheme is not a new type of product. It's just... Uh, so it's similar to a cashback scheme. 
But in a cash boost scheme, we offer higher returns to investors once they... So it's a higher return for first-time investors on our platform. You can see the details on undercardis.com-cashboost. That will provide you all the details. It's not a new product. It's the same product, but it's similar to a cashback scheme. The only difference is that whereby a cashback gives you the money, a cash boost basically invests your cash back into the investment that you made. So it's uh, an incentive scheme for first-time investors on our platform to come in and uh, invest uh, and make money on their first investment, make additional returns on their first investment. That's an incentive that's used by many other platforms as well. Basically, they want to incentivize higher amounts of investments. So yeah. instead of getting 10%, you get that extra 1%, for example, if you invest more than a thousand or more than 10,000, depending on the parameter. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the more you invest, the higher return you get. Correct. Okay. A sort of bonus. Uh, what kind of fees do you charge uh, at Cardus? Yeah. So we charge between uh, 2 and 5%, but we charge the businesses. We don't charge the investors. Uh, so we make uh, a fee before drawdown by the business. So that's what we're currently doing. On the first offer, we charge 3%. On the last two offers, we've charged 5% because they're smaller amounts. Yeah, so we charge the SME that amount before drawdown, and then they are left to repay the full amount of principal plus uh, profit rate. And how big is the organization? I mean, you, yourself, and yeah. how, how many other people are there? Yeah, uh, so currently we're three, but we also have a compliance team. So we're appointed representatives of Sharein which is a regulatory umbrella service provider, we used our compliance team to basically cover the compliance on our platform. Therefore, you subcontract that, that work? We currently operate under their umbrella as an appointed representative. So you could say subcontracting. There is a contractual agreement between them, but we see it more as a partnership. I see. Yeah. Therefore, if I invest in your platform, I get interest, right? Not dividends. Yeah, so structurally... Because that can make a bit of a difference in terms of tax, especially for the foreigners. Yes, you do get dividends. In full disclosure, you get dividends because what we use is an SPV structure. So you should definitely check the dividend taxes in your jurisdiction. On our end, you get a net return, for example, on the one dose offer, you get a net return of 12.15% per annum. Uh, that's the projected return on the platform. Did you get it once a year? No, you get it on a monthly basis. It's per annum, but you get it on a monthly basis. So every month you get the repayment of principal and profit. The profit element would be the dividend. Okay. Therefore, it's a dividend, not, not interest. Correct. It's a dividend, yes. Yeah, therefore, it's not a loan uh, because your name stands for a loan, no? Yeah. The contract between the special purpose vehicle and the business is a Murabaha financing agreement, which is an Islamic debt contract. The contract between the investors and the SPV is basically they purchase shares. So it operates similar to a loan. And the contract between the SPV and the business is an Islamic debt facility. But you are purchasing shares in the SPV. This is why I told you it gets confusing for us, for example, for the Westerners who are not that conversant with Sharia law, yeah. because this is blurred. I mean, whether it's interest, whether it's a, a dividend, for tax purposes, it can make a difference. But anyway, it's, it's good to be clear on this. Yes. And do you have a sec do you provide a secondary market if I want to exit after six months, for example, or you take back 
you buy my share, for example? We're looking at that. Right now, there's no secondary market, to be frank with you. But you could sell your facility or shares. You could sell them at par value. Because right now, if you look at the school of thought that applies to the UK, the Sharia school of thought, you cannot sell the shares at fair market value because the sale of paper is not allowed. So you could only sell it at par value. Okay, therefore, under Sharia law, you cannot sell shares at a profit, if I understand you well. You could sell shares, but you cannot sell shares in an SPV that's backed by an Islamic debt facility. So you could sell shares on the stock market, that's fine. But because of the type of financing that the SPV is getting into, which is an Islamic debt facility, that's uh, tantamount to paper, so it has to be sold at par value. The only way we could make the SPV compliant with selling it at fair market value is if we get one-third of the SPV to purchase assets, actual real assets. Then uh, the shares that you own would be backed by assets, and then you could sell them at fair market value. But to answer your question upright, the shares in the SPV right now cannot be sold at fair market value. We don't have a secondary market right now. Well, the good thing is that you give a dividend every month. Therefore, when you sell the shares, basically it is ex-dividend because the dividends would have been already distributed in any case. That's right. That's right. So, so by the end of the, it's an amortizing facility. By the end of the 24 months, there's no value left, basically. We just unwind the SPV. Okay, one last question from from my, to a couple of questions actually. Yeah. If the project is not fully funded, do you put in the money from from yourselves, for example, to, to make it happen? Or do, do you join in? You, they're skin in the game, as they say, from Cardus, the projects? Yeah, so right now we don't have skin in the game. But I mean, on the first deal on the platform, we passed on all the financing to the uh, businesses. The businesses need the financing. What we usually do is we pass on the financing to them and then run another campaign. So they're taking the financing. On the second deal, we met the minimum target. Right now, we're not investing ourselves in the deal. But I mean, we do have a couple of high net worth individuals who could step in to cover the total amount of financing if we don't reach the minimum target. But I mean... We don't see that being an issue going forwards because we're bringing in the types of deals that we are confident can be uh, covered by the platform. We're not bringing in, for example, 500,000 pound deals when our platform can only cover 100,000 pounds, for example. So we're trying to time the deals in line with the liquidity requirements of our platform. Yeah, one last question from my side. <laughs> if I want to uh, join your platform yeah. and invest money. Yeah. What is the minimum and uh, what kind of know your client documentation I, I would need to provide? Yeah, so uh, the minimum is £100. The know your client documentation basically is you'd need to register on the site and then you'd need a proof of ID and proof of address. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Hassan. This has been really interesting. My pleasure, Joseph. I think uh, we have got a deeper understanding and hopefully our listeners as, as well. And I pass on back to John. Yeah, I just have a few questions myself that you yeah. can answer briefly as we're kind of running out of time. Sure. One problem I had with another platform was the high cost of maintaining an SPV for each investment, yeah. ultimately leading to problems with the platform. And in this case, as you're raising relatively modest amounts, especially yeah. if they're not fully 
funded. Yeah. Do you see any problem with that going forward? Uh, no, I mean, right now we're covering these SPV costs through our fees. We've done calculations. So we've done our homework on, on, on from that standpoint, and the costs are not that significant. But I would say that investors don't need to worry about these costs. They're fully absorbed by, by us right now. If we decide to pass them on to the investors at some point, they would be clearly defined and uh, the investor would be aware of it. But the good thing is that in the UK, I mean, as you know, it's very easy to register SPVs and uh, register yeah. companies. And uh, we made sure that we got some good deals on the uh, from the accounting standpoint around uh, the costs of maintaining an SPV, annual uh, listings and all that kind of stuff, yeah. uh, annual accounts and all that kind of stuff. Okay. And as, a, as an investor who's... I know every investor should delve into the prospectus and everything, but judging from first sight here, I see like the pharmacy um, projects offering 12.15% and the software yeah. company offering a lesser return. Yeah. What goes into calculating the return? Uh, yeah. Is there some kind of weighting that is standard used for every uh, investment? Yes, yes. So we have a, a pricing matrix and we have a risk matrix. So uh, we place the SME on the risk matrix by doing a full uh, risk profiling of the business and the directors. And that's weighted based on many factors. And then uh, we pass it on to the pricing matrix. Where it stands on the pricing matrix defines the pricing. I mean, in the case of the software company, the software company has got a subscription-based model. It's doing really well right now. It's, I mean, revenues and the entire stability of this business are easily predictable because of their uh, subscription-based model. So, I mean, it just turned out to be at a lower risk profile compared to the pharmacy, even though the pharmacy is doing really well. But yeah, I mean, there are certain elements that give us more assurances just from a risk profiling standpoint with regards to the software company. Okay. And for investors who might not be familiar with these kinds of investing and yeah. working capital, yeah. Could we take the example of the software company to yeah. illustrate why they would need to actually raise money, given that the owners are high net worth individuals, they have liquidity, they're doing well. Yeah. Why would they need to raise money at a higher rate? Yeah. So, I mean, the cost of debt is lower than the cost of equity. So these guys basically are looking to purchase. I mean, they're looking to transfer their equipment from Europe back to the UK. Uh, their hardware, where they store all this information because they're in the weather forecasting business. So it's all about where they could store information at lower costs. Traditionally, they've only looked for Islamic financing. So they have an Islamic current account in the Lloyds Bank. And they've also used debt financing, conventional debt financing in the past. The details are in the IM. When an Islamic financing option came up, they ran for it. It was between us and other conventional debt providers and uh, such as Liberis, we basically outperformed the conventional debt providers in that sense. So then what we did is they're looking to transfer these storage facilities anyways. But what they want is they want to have some working capital finance facility that they could tap into once they decide to do that move, to make that data storage move. So they came into us, compared us to other providers in the market, decided we are the best. And then what we did was we ran uh, the Komati Murabaha facility. So we purchased uh, platinum on the open market. We sold it to them on a deferred price payment basis, cost plus profit markup. We sold it on their behalf, gave them the money, and now they're left with this facility. So they have to repay on a monthly basis the principal as well as the returns, the profit markup. And uh, yeah, it's been really good. I mean, from our standpoint, the decision 
it was a commercial decision by the directors that they w- would want to take debt financing to do this and work in capital financing. So we just went with it. It's the same case as well with the pharmacy. The pharmacy is backed by uh, one of the directors who's a high net worth individual. But yeah, I mean, it's just uh, use of debt. They understand the risk profile of their companies. They understand that we're not pricing higher than what they would expect from the market. And they do their homework. Yeah, they decided to leverage. Okay. And the last question would be, Are we? should we expect a specific type of sector? I mean, here we have pharmacy, software. Yeah. Are these arbitrary or are you focusing on specific types of businesses that you might understand better than others or for yeah. other factors? Yeah, uh, it's a good question, Jean. I mean, we've been focusing on sectors that are doing well during the pandemic. Okay. We've been very careful because we have a very early track record of bringing on SMEs that I'd say are less risky compared to the pricing. So they are lower risk. They're at the lower end of the risk spectrum as much as possible. Going forwards, I mean, we're examining the pandemic. We're seeing how the whole situation is coming through. There are certain sectors we're staying away from in the hospitality and restaurants industry, travel agents and the likes. We're looking at manufacturing, bringing on manufacturing. Going forwards, as we look at higher ticket sizes, obviously we'll go towards uh, more security, taking on secured, but obviously that will change the pricing fundamentals on our platform. So it would offer a good diversification benefit for investors, I guess, if they price towards secured financing and unsecured financing. I would say it's another interesting thing is that investors, I mean, obviously there are different types of investors, retail investors, sophisticated investors, high net worth individuals. There's a different understanding as well of risk profiles. So uh, you have a good background in finance, so which means that you're able to understand things better than others. Retail investors have to up their education from a financial standpoint. They must understand diversification benefits. We try to educate them as much as possible. We've got blogs with a lot of information on Sharia compliance. I'm starting to bring in blogs on financial education as well, but they should understand what they're getting into and uh, make sure that they never invest more than they can uh, handle based on their uh, understanding of their personal finances. Yeah, and to that point, uh, first of all, to wrap up, it's been very interesting learning all about the Islamic finance space and this platform. As an investor who has limited knowledge of the Muslim space, I mean, I have several Muslim friends. I've spoken with them on many topics, but we never really got into the side of finance. So as a person interested in history of finance and the different workings of investments, I find it very interesting. At the same time, when looking at this platform, I see the possibility of making maybe a safer investment, a more ethical investment. But on the other hand, I'm kind of put the brakes on because of the intricacies that you mentioned of being Sharia compliant, which I don't understand. So for someone like me who's interested, but is a bit not certain because he doesn't understand those concepts, where would the starting points be to learn more about this topic? Yeah. And I, I hope you don't point me to read your PhD thesis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Something uh, more simple, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my yeah, my PhD thesis was I, I I've got it published uh, online, so maybe 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 once we finish with the initial one, <laughs> uh, there is an interesting book. It's called The Primer on Islamic Finance. I could send it to you after okay. this. Yeah. Uh, it was written by CFA Institute. It gives a good overview from a conventional standpoint, obviously, because of CFA Institute on the subject matter. And it gives a holistic overview of the subject matter. 
across the spectrum from debt-based all the way to equity-based, all the way to insurance, all the way to everything. That's a very good place to start. It's very clear, very articulate, very well written. And once you're done with that, I mean, I could definitely <laughs> complicate the matters worse and send other stuff, but it's a good place to start. But I would really urge investors not to be uh, intimidated by it being Sharia compliant. It's the Sharia compliant aspects of it are in the back end. They are primarily there to offer co comfort to investors who invest based on faith-based requirements. But your risk return decision-making process should not be impacted by the uh, structures we're using. It should be impacted by the uh, taxation schemes that apply to dividends, for sure. But otherwise, I mean, you should look at it uh, similar to other peer-to-peer -peer platforms from a pure financial standpoint. Otherwise, if you're interested in, I mean, we're primarily a financial inclusion platform right now because we are offering financing to businesses that were unable to get financing in the past due to their ethical beliefs and uh, they're not being any sure compliant business financing uh, opportunities here. So you would definitely be doing a social impact in that sense and uh, in terms of financial inclusion. Very good. Yeah, super interesting. Uh, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Um, I, My pleasure. I hope the, the platform takes off and the way we all wanted to. So we'll be in touch and thanks again for joining. Thanks guys. And I really enjoyed this. And I think we touched on a lot of points and I'm definitely going to forward this once it comes online. Thanks Hassan and good luck. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of mastermind.fm. If you liked what you heard in today's episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your feedback encourages us to keep producing the kind of content that you have come to rely on for your own entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the show, send it to us through our website or via email at podcast at mastermind.fm or even connect with us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a fantastic week.